House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. We're going to talk about the book uh, Dirty Tricks, Nixon, Watergate, and the CIA. And joining us is the author, Shane O'Sullivan. Thank you again for being here. Hi, I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. Wow. So now, uh, now we talked last time about your um, RFK book, Who Killed Bobby, and mm-hmm. and now this sort of picks up really right where it left off because after Robert Kennedy was was shot, um, really the election is of '68 is where it picks up. That's right. Yeah, and I mean. Part of the reason I, I wrote this book is that there's kind of a, a tie into the Bobby Kennedy assassination um, because the girl in the polka dot dress that we spoke about last time, one of the witnesses to the girl in the polka dot dress had mentioned um, spending the day with with a girl who he thought may have been the girl in the polka dot dress. And, and she mentioned that after we take care of Kennedy at the Ambassador Hotel that night, she was going to leave the country through San Francisco uh, through f- the Flying Tiger Airlines, which was a, a cargo airline that brought troops to Vietnam at the time. And the vice president of that airline was a woman called Anna Chenault. And, and this this woman, uh, Gilderdine Oppenheimer, who this witness had spent the day with, um, said she'd just come from New York where... Um, she had she had met Miss Chenault uh, three days beforehand, uh, you know, indicating to him that uh, Chenault may have been somewhat involved in the in the plotting for the uh, the Kennedy assassination. So there was a, a an old kind of uh, reporter called Fernando Fora, who was one of the key reporters into the uh, Girl in Polka Dress back in the '68 period, who was very interested in this a couple of years ago and wanted me to accompany him to interview Anna Chenault, who was by then in her early 90s and living in a penthouse in the Watergate uh, apartment building in Washington, D.C., um, and, and just to basically find out if there was any truth to this. So we, we go there, we go into her penthouse apartment, which she'd bought in the late 60s, and ways, which is where basically she used to entertain some of the cream of the Republican um, you know, senior officials uh, at that time, full of photographs of... Anna Chenault with Nixon and Reagan and all the rest of them um, and she denied knowing anything about Gilderdine Oppenheimer or having met her three days before the Kennedy assassination um, but while I was there I asked her a number of questions about her role in the 68 election because that's what she later became famous for and so it was that kind of early research um, about her story that was one of the reasons why I went on to make um, to write Dirty Tricks which in a sense is is a follow-on book from the Bobby Kennedy book because it, it starts out with the 68 election in terms of uh, how the Nixon campaign used dirty tricks to um, to get secure Nixon victory after narrowly losing to John Kennedy in 1960. And then having got away with it in 68, um, you know, using ever more elaborate dirty tricks in 1972, getting a landslide election victory over George McGovern, but then later being caught in the whole Watergate scandal, um, which had actually been a series of break-ins in, in that summer of 72, which we, we which we can talk about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Anna Chenault was a fascinating figure. Uh, Rachel Maddow did a uh, kind of a, a documentary project on her um just, just at the end, toward the end of last year, but to any of your listeners who don't know her, she was 
known as the Dragon Lady at the time. She was um, a, a Chinese woman who was based in Taiwan initially and had been part of the kind of China lobby who were hard anti-communists um, on the on the kind of far right wing of the Republican Party at that time. Quite a powerful lobby in in Washington. And uh, they wanted to support Nixon and gain gain power in, in the Nixon uh, administration if he won the election. And so she offered her services to act as a conduit between um, the South Vietnamese uh, ambassador, who she knew in Washington, and and the Nixon campaign. So what she did was that she, using her friendship with the South Vietnamese, Vietnamese ambassador, she uh, thwarted the Democrat attempts to have uh, peace talks just before the election. So Vietnam War was in full swing, but the Democrat uh, strategy was if we can get peace talks going in Paris, it'll give us a bit of a boost in the election, and we may catch up um, Nixon in the polls in the, in the final days of the campaign and just beat him, beat him to victory. Uh, so LBJ at this stage, um, back in March when Bobby Kennedy Shortly after Bobby Kennedy had declared um, his run for the presidency, LBJ had withdrawn and said, I'm not going to stand again. So Hubert Humphrey um, was the Democratic candidate. Um, you know, Bobby Kennedy obviously was killed, and, and Hubert Humphrey won the nomination. Um, and there were indications that if peace talks had been convened in Paris uh, just in the days before the election, Hubert Humphrey may have caught Nixon um, just at the finish line and got into the White House instead of him. But due due to this kind of subterfuge and this plot involving Anna Chenault and and her her messages through the said Vietnamese ambassador to the said Vietnamese government to stay away from the negotiating table, that was that was just the uh, the extra thing that the, the the Republicans needed and Nixon needed to to win the election, which in, in what was you know a very close race. So the opening couple of chapters of the book look into that whole story, provide kind of new documents in terms of showing that um, Nixon secretly met with the set Vietnamese ambassador Anna, Anna Chenault that summer in kind of, uh, I think it was July 12th, um, in uh, Nixon's apartment in New York. And, and from there, the plans were hatched to really use this back channel with the set Vietnamese, Vietnamese to, uh, to thwart uh, any attempts at peace in Vietnam and prolong the war so that Nixon could get on, get in, and, and supposedly give the Vietnamese a better deal once they, once he once he got into the White House. Um, so um, yeah, it's, she was a, she was a fascinating character, and I mean the Nixon campaign always denied that they ever gave gave her official encouragement. But some of the documents that I've found that 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 go into the book show that the Nixon campaign was encouraging her all along. Now, something I've always wanted to ask Shane, and and not to diminish anything that you just said, um, people that are familiar with you know Watergate. You know, they kind of know what happened, but I've always wanted to ask, what what was taken? What did they get out of the Watergate break-in? Yeah. Well, not, the answer is not very much. And, and, and there were also, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but there are actually two break-ins. Um, so in the first break-in, ostensibly what they said they went in to get were were two things they wanted to according to the cuban the cuban burglars um the cubans made up most of the burglary team they were um uh they were they were told by um howard hunt that 
Castro was secretly financing the McGovern campaign. I mean, McGovern was a kind of a far-left candidate who, who won the Democratic nomination that year. And and there were rumors in Miami, um, and then Hunt, Hunt kind of um, solidified these in the, in the minds of the Cuban burglars, that Castro was financing McGovern. So they were trying to find documents in the DNC that would prove that, that could obviously be used to smear the McGovern campaign. Um, so that was that was number one, and number two, they were also looking to put um, bugs on the phones of some of the key personnel in the DNC um, for some unknown reason. We we don't really know exactly why they did it, but they wanted to gather campaign intelligence and obviously being able to eavesdrop on uh, the conversations of key officials within the DNC would um, they would be able to monitor. How the, how the campaign was going, what their campaign strategy was, and also whatever dirt they had on the Republicans, because it was a kind of like a, a paranoid time where, you know, I mean, the, again, it's the notion of opposition research. What do we have on the, have on them, and what do they have on us? So uh, the break-in was was partly about finding, you know, what what dirt they had on us, either through documentary evidence found in in the DNC chairman Larry O'Brien's office or that could be overheard in some of the phone calls of some of the key personnel. Um, the interesting thing about the break-ins, though, were they were, I mean, they were, they were third-rate burglaries, even though some of the personnel involved were, were highly qualified and trained men who had worked with the CIA for, for many years, in, in, often in quite senior positions. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the, the people within the Nixon campaign who, who gave a quarter of a million dollars for this operation were very disappointed by the results of the first break-in. Um, the documents that were provided to them um, by Hunt and Liddy really gave them no information at all. And of the two bugs that were attempted to be planted, uh, one didn't work. And, and, and one gave them kind of limited information that they didn't think was very helpful. So part of the reason there was a second break-in on, on the morning of June 17th, uh, 1972, was number one, because one of the two books wasn't working. Um, as I found it in writing the book, um, that book wasn't even placed in the right office because they didn't have a uh, they didn't have a floor plan of the DNC during the first break-in, so they'd, they'd planted the bug in the complete wrong side of the building, thinking thinking that was the chairman's office when it wasn't, um, and also the the documentary take or the documentary uh, the documents that they'd secretly photographed during the first break-in were really of no use to anybody. So they went in a second time to to see if they could find something more interesting. But the second time they were in there, um, they they were only in there about ten minutes before. Um, Masking tape was found on the doors uh, leading up from the gar- garage level by the security guard. He called the police, and, and pretty much within 10 minutes of them gaining access to the DNC offices on the sixth floor of the Watergate building, um, the, the three plainclothes police officers um, followed them in to the sixth floor with their torches and, and eventually found them and, and arrested them. So they, they really didn't get up to very much um, during the second break-in. They didn't have time to take any photographs. They may not have time to, to do anything with the bugs, but the, but because they'd botched the first break-in, um, they'd been told to go in and again, and that was their downfall. You know, they'd, they'd got away with the first break-in, but then they were mm-hmm. caught the second time. Yeah. So ultimately, uh, well, two, two questions real quick. Ultimately, yeah. what was it that they were looking for, 
And question number two, was there Russian collusion? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, well, I think we were 50 years apart there in terms of your questions. But, uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, there, 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 there's all sorts of uh, parallels to be drawn, I think, between between the two. Um, yeah, I mean, as I say, they, they, they were looking for the, the documentary evidence of, of Cuban collusion, essentially, you know, um, which was red hot at the time and would obviously be a key motivation for the, for the anti-Castro Cuban burglars who were coming up from Miami to do the dirty work, um, thinking that if they found evidence that Castro had been supporting McGovern, first of all, they could stop McGovern getting into the White House, um, because if McGovern got in, he'd be friends with Castro, and any hope of going back and having a second Cuban invasion after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion would be out of the question. And plus, they were also given very kind of dodgy promises by Hunt that, it, that if this worked and Nixon got into the White House, um, he would look. He would look at supporting kind of anti-Castro, you know, invasion of Cuba again, which is was just ridiculous. He never had any idea of doing anything like that. Um, you know, he was always he was already making detente with with the Russians and China and whatever. Um, but it is there are similarities b- between obviously the, the Trump era and the Nixon era because you know we have we have a break in at the DNC. One is obviously looking for documents and uh, and bugging phones, and one is one is hacking hacking the DNC uh, computers and so on. And uh, and we're talking about Cuban collusion versus Russian collusion. And yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of uh, kind of overlap. And Roger in Stone the was in yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> leave, um, leave Roger alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't bring Roger into it. But um but yeah, I mean it's it's it is very interesting and, and, and again they talk about um the whole kind of um the, the way Watergate was then prosecuted and the whole impeachment proceedings and you know, um a lot of lessons being drawn or looking into, you know, is that the way things are gonna go? with the year ahead of us in politics. So, I mean, I, I don't really get into any of that in the book because I think as, um, things are changing week by week with the Trump situation. So if I put anything in the book, it would date very quickly. So, But, but I think as you're, as you're reading the book, the, the parallels you're drawing with, with current events uh, make it you know, even more enjoyable in terms of um, you know, history repeating itself. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, election dirty tricks like this have been around for a long time, and they're not necessarily confined to one party. Everybody does it, but they're not necessarily always caught. So Watergate kind of gives us a kind of a lesson in terms of going into the details of what they were trying to do, um, how sloppiness on the part of certain um, perpetrators got them caught, um, and in the case of my book, actually going into the corridors of the CIA and, and really looking at how they reacted to to Watergate, because the problem from the for the C, from a CIA perspective was um, of the five men who went into Watergate, um, of the five burglars who went in the second time, uh, James McCord, who was in charge of the electronic uh, bugging side of things, he had been head of physical security for all CIA installations um, in the late 60s. He'd retired from CIA in, the 1970, in 1970 after 20 years service. He was a very kind of senior official within the Office of Security. Um, after setting up his own security company, McCord Associates, he then went to work as head of security for the committee to re-elect the president, which was Nixon's campaign. Um, and then because they didn't quite get the budget they wanted um, for the break-ins, they actually used 
him, McCord, as, as one of the break-in team, which looking back on it was just a crazy thing to do because once he gets arrested and the police identify him, they can say, okay, within the DNC, you know, one of the five people breaking into the DNC was the head of security for the committee to re-elect the president, their, their political enemy. <laughs> you know, immediately you draw a straight line to the Nixon campaign and they're immediately in, in a lot of hot water. Um, and then, you know, the Nixon White House and the Nixon campaign in turn says, okay, but McCord was also a senior official at CIA and if you look at the other burglars, they also have CIA uh, connections. One of them, the guy who was actually supposed to photograph the documents, Rolando Martinez, was a hero in Miami, having having done on 350 infiltration raids into Cuba for the CIA as a CIA agent, and he was still on the on the books of the CIA at the time of the break-in. So the CIA was also in in hot water in terms of it looking to the public as if, you know, it could have been a CIA operation because um, several CIA-connected figures were within that team. And then, obviously, one of the people managing the break-in, Howard Hunt, was a, a legendary CIA figure himself. Um, you know, so, so that that's really what the book is about. It's about looking not so much at all the president's men and the Watergate cover-up, but looking at actually the burglary itself and some of the CIA-connected figures involved and how the Nixon White House and the CIA tried to argue with their way out of it in terms of uh, avoiding any kind of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, well, yeah. it sort of is similar. Um, <laughs> now, did you get into uh, William Felt Sr., or as we know it as Deep Throat, and that sort of how that transpired, or... Yeah, I don't. I don't go too much into into Mark Feltz. Yeah, Mark Feltz was obviously outed by Bob Woodward as the the, the only source of the the, you know, the deep throat revelations in the in the movie and in the book. I think a lot of. Um, I mean, going through Woodward's papers. I mean, the actual notes that he took during during his investigation prior to him writing his articles and writing the book and so on. Um, I think a lot of authors in recent years really seriously doubt that he was the sole, um, you know, he was the sole deep throat, or, you know, they, they think it was a, a comp deep throat was kind of like a fictional composite of several people who were providing uh, leads to Woodward and Bernstein at the time. So I think that, yeah, I, I think it's partly a, a bit of a myth about deep throat. Obviously, Mark felt. Uh, as number two within the FBI was was obviously giving important leads to Woodward and Bernstein, but but I think um, as the FBI case agent for Watergate has later said, it was nothing that the FBI didn't already know. I mean, they were they were leaking stuff that the FBI knew already. So they but they weren't really breaking breaking new stuff for the investigation, if you know what I mean. So um, I think that's I, I think the problem with with a book on Watergate is that you're fighting the whole mythology around Woodward and Bernstein, and, and what they tell us about Watergate is really uh, just a very narrow slice of what the whole affair was about, and they don't really go into detail about what the burglary is about, the, the backgrounds of the burglars and the CIA associations, um, you know, the details of the break-ins themselves, what the burglars were looking for, the different agendas they may have had that didn't necessarily come out at the time, what they heard on the bugged phones, um, and so on and so forth. You know, um, I mean, one very interesting thing I, I found about Howard Hunt um, was that he was very close, even though he'd retired from um, CIA in 1970, like like James McCord, um, he continued to stay very close to Richard Helms. 
and and Howard Hunt in his later years at CIA he wasn't so active in terms of uh, clandestine operations but he was encouraged to um, to write these spy novels that he'd been writing since the early, the early 50s with the idea that um, David St. John which was his, his pen name might be, might be the uh, the American version of uh, of Ian Fleming and the James Bond novels um, so the CIA was you know, very anxious to improve its public image and it thought having a series of spy novels um, a la James Bond penned by Howard Hunt under his pen name David St. John would, would help rehabilitate the agency's reputation so what you find is that um, in the late 60s and early 70s uh, Richard Helms, the, the CIA director is, is using uh, Jack Vellante who was the head of the Motion Picture Association of America at that time to court Hollywood studios and, uh, and Hollywood uh, TV studios to either get a movie or to get a TV series going based on Hunt's novels. Um, and so there was a screening of The Godfather, I think it was May 9th, 1972, just a couple of weeks before the first Watergate break-in, where you know you had the CIA director pitching Hollywood studios with the spy novels of Howard Hunt, and a couple of weeks later, Hunt is managing the Watergate break-in. <laughs> so, the uh, it, it hasn't been acknowledged that you know Hunt and Hunt and Helms were 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 really close at that time. Apparently, Hunt was was Hunt was based at the White House, and he was sending secret pa- packages to Helms at that time that contained you know supposed sexual gossip about some of the people working at the White House. So that this this whole train of thought that um, Hunt may have had hidden agendas. Uh, he may have been communicating with Helms before Watergate. Did Helms know about Watergate beforehand? He certainly knew about it, you know, within days afterwards. But then again, he, su- he suppressed a lot of what he knew um, from the investigations that followed. Hmm. Now, s- speaking of that, the investigations that followed, well, let's refocus in on the crime itself, the Watergate break-ins. You know, yeah. after any major crime of this sort, you've... You've got this moment of silence. You have this pause while everybody is trying to put the pieces together of what just happened. You know, how did it break? I mean, how did the investigators get the break of knowing where to go to find their witnesses or the people that would be willing to talk about this? You know, where did they start to to get that break, you know, that moment? Well, um, I think the first thing was identifying who they'd arrested because they 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 they, they arrested these five men uh, wearing suits and rubber gloves um, in the DNC. They immediately knew this is our no, normal break-in team. You know, they were very smartly dressed, wearing rubber gloves. It it, it had the it had the smell of uh, you know a professional team or almost intelligence operators. Um, but they were all using kind of fake names. But they were also incredibly sloppy because, you know, on them, they were carrying their hotel keys. So they go back to the hotel room and they find material which identifies them <laughs> and which also identifies one of the guys who put the operation together, um, Howard Hunt. Howard Hunt's name was, was in some of the burglars' address books when they went, went to the hotel room, which had been used as a kind of command post for the operation in, in the Watergate Hotel. So pretty much within a couple of days, um, they knew who these men were. They, they asked the CIA give us, to give us the backgrounds of these men. The CIA at that time wasn't giving much information out about the fact that Rolando Martinez was still on their books, but they weren't, they weren't admitting to that at the time. Um, 
But I guess the, the early investigation um, was we had the five burglars. Pretty soon um, they figured out that Hunt and Liddy were also involved. And so that they were the ones who were initially indicted. There was an indictment brought down by the prosecutors in, in mid-September. And they felt at that time that Hunt and Liddy had come up with this plan by themselves. They'd, you know, they'd, they'd kind of seen it as a kind of like rogue, rogue operation by by Liddy, who, you know, if you know G. Gordon Liddy, he's quite a mm-hmm. mad character. So, um, yes. you know, they they pass it off as a kind of a mad, madcap scheme by G. Gordon Liddy, supported by Hunt, um, with money given by the Nixon campaign, without Nixon campaign knowing necessarily what the money was going to be spent on. But then the next part of the uh, cover-up investigation, um, that, that whole thing began to unravel when James McCord um, started talking. Um, so in March, um, just before he was due to be sentenced, um, he refused... A lot, a lot of the burglars stayed quiet because they were being paid off. They were being paid legal expenses to cover lawyers' fees, being paid some sustenance money for their families to, to cope while they were in jail. Um, but McCord um, was single-minded in terms of wanting the truth to come out or his truth to come out, and he wrote a letter to Judge Sirica, who was the trial judge, basically saying that some of the witnesses in the first trial had perjured themselves and that, you know, it went above Hunt and Liddy, that, that some of the key personnel around Nixon had had knowledge of the operation. Um, McCourt himself didn't have direct knowledge of that. He, he was just going on what Liddy had told him. But once McCord came out with his letter to Judge Sirica, um, then shortly after that, John Dean started talking because John Dean could see the clouds rolling in. He could see indictments in the offing. And, and he, you know, in order to cut his own deal and save his own skin, he started talking um, to prosecutors. And then he gave his famous kind of uh, Watergate Senate Committee testimony in the summer of 73, where he laid out what he knew essentially about, um, you know, Nixon certainly knowing within days of the break-in what had happened. And, 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 and Dean then as White House counsel being the architect of the cover-up. Um, and, and, you know, implicating John Mitchell, who had been the, the head of Nixon's campaign and various other senior figures, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and, and, and so on. So the story of Watergate, is, is it's about that kind of initial trial where it was just limited to the Hunt and Liddy and the, and the five burglars. But then, you know, um, the floodgates opened once McCord wrote that letter to Judge Sirica, and then they began to pick off some of the key men around Nixon and um they were they were forced to resign from government and uh, and then eventually uh, Nixon was pulled into the whole thing and he resigned. Uh, but you know it was it was a kind of Nixon's reg- resignation. He announced it on um, he announced he was going to do it on August the eighth, seventy four. So it took just over two years for the whole thing to unravel. Wow. Yeah, that's about the right amount of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think a lot of them don't think they're going to get caught. This is the only reason you can explain. Um, yeah. making such bad mistakes, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, on the one hand, yeah, they, I, I guess part of the reason they, they picked people with intelligence connections are, are, the, are the Cubans who were blindly loyal to CIA or other agencies who'd employed them was they, they, know, they, they knew they were good soldiers and they would stay quiet and as long as the, as long as the payoff money kept coming to cover lawyers' expenses and so on, um, they would keep they would keep it silent. Gordon Liddy refused to testify um, in front of any of the investigate or any of the Watergate investigations, 
Um, so he, he kept his word. Hunt was a bit more of a, a unpredictable or unreliable um, conspirator in that sense. He was basically making threats to the Nixon uh, White House that, you know, if I don't get X amount of money by X date, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out in the open with, with what, I, what, I, what I know. Um, so they were, you know, a lot, a lot of the time they were kind of like buying, buying the silence of some of the conspirators. But then the cracks, the cracks started to appear when uh, McCord wrote that letter. So I think a lot of uh, a lot of the the, the kind of Watergate unraveling um, goes to McCord's kind of standing up and, and refusing to be bought off and refusing to be to be loyal to what he thought were kind of uh, immoral kind of um, campaign aides of Nixon and and, 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 and and being being kind of the first whistleblower in the case. Um, and then it unravels from there. Yeah, yeah, sort of like the Jerome Corsi and Stone again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You, well. I mean, you think obviously Michael Michael Cohen's his testimony is coming up, and we have yeah. Michael Flynn, and, you know, all the rest of it. So, um, I mean, yeah, in terms of Watergate whistleblowers, um, the first person they got to talk was was really Alfred Baldwin. Alfred Baldwin was an ex FBI agent who was in the Howard Johnson across the street from the DNC. And so he was the one who was sitting there for three weeks in that motel room, listening to the phone conversations that were being tapped, uh, that were being bugged uh, by the one working um, device that they planted. Uh, and so he was the, one of the first ones to cut a deal with the prosecutors and and tell them, you know, of those 200 hours of conversations, you know, what he was listening to, what McCord had told them about why they were doing it, and so on and so forth. So. He, he was one of the first breaks they got in terms of somebody who, who started talking. And then, as I said, then um, McCord started um, going directly to the judge to tell him what he knew. And then the floodgates opened and the prosecutors started working with um, with Dean and Magruder. Um, Dean to show that the president knew of the cover-up and, and Haldeman and Ehrlichman Erlich, and some of the Nixon's chief, uh, chief, chiefs of staff. Um, initiated the cover-up within days of the break-in, and Magruder then could prove that uh, M- Mitchell had actually signed off on the money for the break-in in the first place. Well, it, oh, go ahead. Well, uh, along that that vein, it, fast forwarding to the future, how do you think it would have played out today? Well, um, it's interesting uh, in terms of how some of the Republican investigators turned against Nixon uh, at the time um, and had the public turned against Nixon because you have to remember Watergate was, you know, the Watergate arrests were June 17, 1972, but it, it didn't really make much impact in the press at the time. And then uh, Nixon won in a landslide. I think he only lost a couple of states against McGovern. It was, it was one of the, the most one-sided election victories for some time. And then it was only when uh, McCord wrote that letter to Judge Sirica, and and then you know Dean started talking to the president about what about what he knew, and and, and started talking to the prosecutors in a kind of March-April period of 1973 that things started to unravel. And the other the other key um, operation that I haven't mentioned so far was the um, the break-in at the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg which some of the Watergate burglars had been involved in um, the previous August, in, 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 or sorry, early, early September 1971, 
which again was another dirty secret that um, some of Nixon's key people knew about and that Hunt knew about and he was blackmailing them about. Um, but that, that then came out in May 73. So suddenly through these whistleblowers and through um, the facts coming out about um, basically Hunt breaking into the psychiatrist's offices of Daniel Ellsberg, um, that the reason for that was Ellsberg had leaked the Pentagon Papers. Um, Nixon had seen this as a big threat that um, you know these classified papers were being leaked by these kind of uh, left-wing, you know, the champions of the left, Daniel Ellsberg being a former Pentagon analyst. So his first thought was, we have to kill, we have to kind of um, smear this guy in the press, we have to dirty his name, we know he is a psychiatrist, let's break into a psychiatrist's office, find out what, what kind of uh, dirty laundry there is in his past or in his sexual es escapades or whatever, and use this... Uh, this kind of private material in the psychiatrist's file to um, to smear him in the press and, 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 and remove remove his threat. Uh, again, it was a break-in that was very sloppy, um, that didn't actually find anything, that wasn't really of any use, but that later came back to haunt the Nixon campaign because uh, John Ehrlichman had approved it, uh, Hunt and Liddy, again, had masterminded it, and Martinez, who's Martinez and Barker, who, who later went into the Watergate, were also involved. Um, so there was a kind of like a double whammy. Um, so that when when the news about that broke in May '73, um, you know, and and, and and Dean had started talking to prosecutors, that really opened the floodgates. Um, and and you know, then we got into the Nixon tapes, and 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 there were another layer of kind of unpeeling the onion. Once, once they found they had conversations of Nixon actually talking about covering up some of this stuff. Some things never change, right, Al? So yeah. Well, I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, what do you think the, what, what is your book going to show for people that, um, there was quite a few myths and rumors and all sorts of stories. Um, what were you able to clear up for people as far as debunking sort of myths? I think um, the key things are what what the burglary was about. You know, what, um, why they went in there, what the motivations of each of the burglars was. I mean, they they, they each had a different agenda. Um, Martinez, Barker, Sturgis, they were they were given the myth that um, you know Castro was funding the McGovern campaign. And with their help, uh, Nixon would would kind of possibly invade Cuba um, if he was successful, and they supported his election effort. McCord um, actually felt that there may be there may be documents tying um, Castro to the McGovern campaign, but he was also worried about protests um, at the Republican convention in Miami in uh, that July, where he thought there were going to be a lot of kind of long-haired pro uh, anti-war protesters that would um, have a physical threat for, for, for the Nixon campaign. And he thought some of them were actually working within DNC at the time. So that was part of his motivation. And he was also, I think he also had his own agenda because one of the things he said to um, Alfred Baldwin when they were in that motel room listening to some of these conversations in the three weeks preceding the second break-in um, was that he felt the country was going the wrong way. He felt Nixon... Um, you know, making detente with Russia and China was quite worrying for the country. And he also mentioned that he'd been in Dallas on 22nd of November 1963. Um, so behind McCord, you have a very mysterious figure who seems to, who, who, 
who made a lot of mistakes in the operation. I mean, he, he left the tape on the door um, so that basically the security guard could find this and, and then call the police and kind of uh, the operation was, was found out. So there's a suggestion that McCord may have been sabotaging the operation and may intentionally have got the team caught. Uh, he was also the McCord was also the one who inv- advised Barker, who had a walkie-talkie with him uh, in the DNC to switch off his walkie-talkie because it was making too much static and too much noise in the corridor. So he, he did a lot of very suspicious things um, that lead have led Martinez, who was one of the burglars, and, and several other. Uh, I think Angela Lano, who was, who was the FBI case agent, a, a lot of people suspect that McCord um, was, had his own agenda and may have been there to sabotage the operation and to get the burglars caught and, and to embarrass the Nixon administration. So, um, so I look into, into kind of some of that stuff in the book, um, as well as you know some some basic things that just don't appear in any other books. I mean, you won't you won't find. Um, a description of where the burglars are actually found in the, in the DNC and any of the other books. I mean, basic basic facts like this are kind of missing. Um, where the first bug, bug was actually placed, um, and as, as I've described, how it was placed in the in the, in the completely the wrong side of the DNC offices, um, and also some of the some of the kind of lasting mysteries about the case. I mean, when the when the police went in and investigated, um, there were supposedly taps put on the phones but they didn't actually find any devices on the phones uh, on the night of the second break-in when they, when they checked all the phones in the aftermath of the arrests. Um, and they only actually found a device in the phone three months later um, when one of the DNC operatives, uh, one of their secretaries, had complained about tapping on her line, got the telephone company to come in and check, and when they opened up the phone, they found a bug in there. So um, that was found in September, when the Democrats were starting to kind of make make kind of propaganda of the whole case against Watergate and against the Republicans to accuse them of dirty tricks, and the FBI kind of felt that the Democrats had kind of planted their own bug in their own phone to keep the whole story going. So there's a mystery about you know uh, Democrat, electronic devices at the DNC that were never found that Alfred Baldwin was listening to, um, and the only device ever actually found was three months later. Um, and, and there's a, a suggestion by the FBI that the Democrats planted it there. So there's a lot of back and forth in terms of the two campaigns trying to take advantage of each other in the run-up to the election. Yeah. Would not surprise me at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's evergreen stuff, you know. It's, just, it's, 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 it's happened for years, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. Um, so, uh, any any have you got any blowback from uh, writing about Watergate and putting out more evidence? Is there people that maybe are still kind of involved in the situation that maybe are not happy? Well, um, yeah. I mean, I, I expected more than I've got so far, which is which is good um, because I, I yeah I managed to write two pieces, two articles for the Washington Post, which is obviously the paper most associated with uh, with Watergate. Um, so to, I wrote two stories for them based on some of the episodes I recount in the book, and um, and yeah, there's been no no blowback from CIA or some of the figures that I accused in those articles, which is quite positive. And it's good that you know the the, the post is opening to open to publishing and um, kind of other perspectives on these events. Um, I mean, one of one of those articles was about Martinez, who's a really a fascinating character, 
who um, he served his time for Watergate, and then in 1977 he was approached by Cuban intelligence to um, to go over to their side, basically, and, 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 and become one of their agents. And the reason at the time was Jimmy Carter had just become president, and he was trying to make peace or make detente with Castro, and Cuban intelligence wanted to get key figures in the Cuban scene in Miami to basically act as kind of uh, agents to, to su- suggest to the Miami community that actually, you know, burying the hatchet with Castro and, and, and having detente with Cuba wouldn't be such a bad thing. So um, Martinez, you know, fresh out of Watergate, the Cubans thought he would be bitter about his experiences, having been basically an innocent party just doing what he thought it was his job for the country. Um, and that they thought they could turn him into into a spy for them or into somebody who would support this this Cuban campaign, but he stayed very loyal to the CIA. He immediately contacted the CIA, let them know that he'd have this approach from Cuban intelligence. They turned him over to the FBI, who sent him off on this double agent mission to Cuba, where he he sailed on Castro's yacht. Uh, over to Cuba. He had meetings with some of the top officials in the Cuban government. They gave him a sum of money thinking they'd now recruit them as, as their agent. And then as soon as he got back to the U.S., he was debriefed by the CIA and the FBI and, and gave them some key information and, and, and handed them the money he'd been given by Cuban intelligence and, uh, and basically foiled, foiled their plan and uh, gave key information about the kind of techniques they use to American intelligence to combat such approaches in the future. Um, so what happened then six years later in 1983 under the Reagan presidency, who would receive a presidential pardon but Rolando Martinez, the, the only figure apart from Nixon to ever receive a presidential pardon for his role in Watergate. Um, so that was one of the, the kind of new, new stories, if you like, that's brought out in the, in the, in the book. Um, this kind of, um, apart, apart from Nixon, who got the pardon, you know, nobody has, has really ever covered Rolando Martinez's role. And nobody at the time in 1983 really understood, okay, Martinez is getting a pardon for what he did in Watergate, but Hunt and Liddy and some of the people around Nixon applied for pardons, but they were denied. And nobody ever really understood the reason for it. And so some of the documentary evidence I was able to uncover, um, this double agent mission that he did proved his loyalty and proved he'd been a good soldier. So despite all the hardship he's, he'd endured as a kind of scapegoat for Watergate, eventually he got his rights as a citizen back and he got his presidential pardon from, from Reagan. Yeah. yeah. Quite a bit different times, too. Uh, back then... Um uh, you know, it, it was funny because the uh, the Republicans were anti-Russian, uh, yeah, and the Democrats were were more you know liberal toward that. And nowadays, it's completely opposite. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> the, the whole the whole notion of um, the the whole Cold War perspective on working with the Russians seems to be kind of over overturned by some of the stuff that's gone on. Yeah, and, and I guess. I guess the difference is that maybe Trump has taken a business perspective towards it rather than the the, the normal. If you have a normal politician, they they know what what any kind of liaison with with Russia or Russian elements or even Russian people could mean for the political career, and and they have an understanding of the counterintelligence threat in terms of you know Russians or agents of the Russians trying to compromise them in various ways. So. 
um, maybe coming from a business background, the Trump Trumpers organization didn't didn't have the awareness of the damage they, that could, that could do to them politically. Um, I, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but um, yeah. <laughs> but certainly it's a well, it's a whole different spin on this. If it's just going to backfire on Russia, like from that point of view, of just sort of being manipulative, trying to be involved in elections to splinter their, their enemy, so to speak, and now it yeah. turned to backfire because, now, you know, the other half of the country isn't don't like Russians now as well, sort of? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the things that they do, even even you know, some of the political murders they've they've been doing in the UK, where you know they they poisoned various opponents who who have been in exile in the UK, and it's it's so blatant the way they do it, and it's so blatant that the, the way they seem to have kind of tried to interfere in the US election as well. Um, I mean, I I don't know, but at the same time, I guess they they try and through um, through kind of playing with social media and, and, and maybe fake news and, and propaganda and all the rest of it and, and kind of propaganda campaigns, they try to muddy the waters with so many competing views and competing narratives that nobody can quite work out where the truth is or where the truth lies. So um, I guess, you know, everybody has their own kind of partisan view of where their political allegiances are and who they believe, um, and it makes it very difficult to, to figure out exactly what went on. Um, and so, and ultimately, they think they can get away with it, and uh, and it serves their interests in terms of destabilizing NATO or destabilizing American politics, and 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 all the rest of it, or or perhaps getting the man they want in the White House into the White House to to kind of be more sympathetic to the policies that they want. Again, it's it's I don't think it's new. It's it's I'm, I'm sure any major power. Um, this kind of stuff is going on all, all the time, but um, but probably in the last couple of years, the general public has become more aware of how this, these counter intelligence operations work. Um, so I guess it's, it, it makes it more interesting for people like me because when you're when you're talking these about these kind of counter intelligence. Um, Cases, um, people now have a better understanding of what you're talking about because they see it happening, you know, in the daily news cycle, uh, in the you know during during the last couple of years. So it's, it certainly makes for interesting times. Well, and just uh, one thing, I was just curious when you talk about uh, members of the CIA that are involved in things like Watergate, are are aware of things. Um, it's not a total conspiracy of CIA. It's not like the whole group. It's just—it's kind of just a few agents, or is it more? Oh yeah, no. I mean, well, I mean, this is something that—I mean, some authors do feel there's a deep state um, agenda behind the Watergate. That perhaps because Nixon and Kissinger were kind of doing their own thing, not really liaising with the intelligence agencies, um, almost trying to bring a lot of their intelligence. Uh, operation in-house within the White House to, to work around the intelligence agencies almost in the way kind of Trump seems to have done um, and that because the intelligence agencies that made them nervous that they um, they hatched some sort of um, secret plot to through through somebody like a saboteur like McCord for example to uh, to kind of entrap Nixon through this failed operation that that, would, that could then be traced back to his campaign I mean I, I just don't think um, there's sufficient evidence to, to prove something like that. I think, as you say, um, 
it was really um, key operatives in the Watergate plus that could be traced down back to CIA. And I think the interesting story is the way CIA tried to defend itself against that because CIA had, had just come out of the 60s where they'd been kind of blamed for involvement in the JFK assassination, possibly the RFK assassination. They would, they would shortly um, after Watergate be involved in you know, all sorts of revelations about MKUltra and so on and their, their, their domestic spying programs on anti-war protesters in the late 60s. So the last thing they needed was to be implicated in, war, in Watergate. Um, so it's interesting in, in the book to track how they, they furiously try to defend themselves and, and, and basically um, suppress any evidence of um, CIA associations with the Watergate break-in. Meaning they, they essentially they, they just crazy. Well, um, now do you have a website or anything you want to give up to people? Yeah, sure. Um, so the website for the Dirty Tricks book is nixondirtytricks.com. Um, so there's a lot of information up there, and you can also click to order order the book. And I, I put up key key documents and, and photographs of, of key individuals in the book. And the other website I have is for the uh, Who Killed Bobby book, which is WhoKilledBobby.net. Um, right. And again, you can uh, find links to the material there. Uh, fantastic. And we'll have your books linked on our site as well, so the viewers that are listening on our site can just do one click. Again, Brilliant. our book has been uh, Dirty Tricks, Nixon, Watergate, and the CIA. And our guest has been Shane O'Sullivan. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks hey, a lot for having you. me. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.